Is this everything that there is, or is there more? The physicist Sir Arthur Stanley Eddington said, The stuff of the world is mind stuff. And now, 50 years later, quantum physics is validating that statement. Our universe exists within our own consciousness. I'm Ron, and welcome to Simplest State, where we explore creativity and the expression of consciousness in the lives of our guests. George Barcelar was born in the south of Holland and grew up in Sydney, Australia, where he studied civil engineering and spent his spare time as a teenager either surfing or playing soccer. At the age of 18, George took a very keen interest in yoga, which eventually inspired him to learn transcendental meditation and later to become a teacher of the TM technique. He continued his studies and went more deeply into Vedic science and Sanskrit and developed a keen interest in Kashmiri Shaiva philosophy. Feeling an irresistible pull, George went to India to study under the guidance of Swami Lakshmanju, who was the last living master of the oral tradition of Kashmir Shaivism. After years in the ashram of Swami Lakshmanju, George was given permission to begin transcribing all of the Swami's recorded lectures, and he began working full-time to publish all of Lakshmanju's teachings as original transcripts along with the original audio recordings. It took almost 20 years to complete the English transcriptions of all of Swami Lakshmanju's recorded teachings. George now lives in Northern California, where he and his partner Claudia work full-time for the Universal Shaiva Fellowship and Lakshmanju Academy. They often spend the summers in Kashmir, and George is connected with us today from Kashmir, India, at the ashram of Shaivacharya Swami Lakshmanju Maharaj. Welcome, George, to Simplest State. Thank you, Ron. Um, nice introduction, brief and to the point. It's a pleasure having you here, George, and I'm glad that we had this opportunity. I've been looking forward to it for quite some time. Now, you were 18 years old when you were drawn to higher knowledge and learn meditation. And I'm wondering, was there a spiritual element in your upbringing or in your education that moved you in that direction? I would definitely say yes. Um, I was born into a very, very um, devotional Catholic family. And one of my earliest memories was sitting on the floor doing a mala japa of the rosary. We each had a set of rosary beads and that was a daily uh, occurrence where we would tell our beads, you could say. And I, that, it felt so familiar, even at that young age, just going through 10 Our Fathers, 10 Hail Marys. Uh, my mother um, was definitely a very special soul um, in, in my life, my father too. But uh, yeah, so there was that underlying spiritual background that I had from a ch the age of, you know, two, well, two years old, as far as I could remember. So that 
childhood upbringing in Catholicism, you felt enlivened some spiritual value in you. And it, did it encourage you and urge you to seek greater knowledge, or spiritual knowledge, mystical knowledge? No, no. I was a typical kid, you know, uh, did the family rosary until you were old enough to rebel and, and say you had something more important or homework. Uh, but my parents continued like that. And uh, then I became, yeah, we went to church every Sunday. Um, I had mystical experiences in churches as a kid. I, would, I, I, I thought that it was part of the church when I would see these angels standing on either side. But as a kid, you know, they were eight feet, nine feet tall. And I thought that they were actually always there. And when the bells would ring, they would just get elated, you know. And, um, and then, you know, I, that seemed normal to me. I thought everybody saw that, so it, was, it wasn't a big deal. But it was a special kind of feeling. But, you know, as I became a teenager, uh, sort of stopped going to church and, uh, and then had some experience uh, which sort of changed me um, in, in a church. And, and I felt that some big event was going to happen. I didn't know what it was. At that time, I was in, you know, music, um, smoking <laughs> the obnoxious weed and uh, doing everything that you did in the 60s. But then, uh, then I met two uh, hippies <laughs> on, a, on a surfing trip to Byron Bay, very famous place in Australia. Many of you would have heard of it. Uh, I met two hippie sisters who were, had been lifelong vegetarians, and they were so unusual. They were so pure. There was something just uh, mystical about them. And they were basically my first gurus. They said, uh, George, you're lost. You got to find yourself. You have to go to a, uh, you have to go to a hippie commune. Take off everything, get rid of all material possessions, and live there, and see if you can feel something about your your soul. Did you follow that advice? I did actually. Uh, Lucy, one of the sisters, gave uh, me a copy of Cahill Gibran's The Prophet. So I went off. I was still working for the government. I was doing my uh, civil engineering degree. I was 18. I'd, I'd started work at 16. And uh, I went off to a very famous commune in the northern part of Queensland, rainforest, perfect, 30 or 40 people, all naked, walking around, pretending they weren't looking at one another. You know, and uh, I, I was there for two weeks, but it didn't make sense because they were supposed to be free of material possessions and yet they were all smoking dope. They were all attached to the one material possession that they weren't aware of. And, but they all, yeah, they could philosophize on everything, but none of them could, uh, could give that up. I had given it up. By the time I got back to meet up with Lucy, um, they'd all learned TM. They'd Kathy Knowles and, 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 uh, you know, had gone to Byron Bay, taught a big course. So this transition from going to, I think, no, you don't have to do that. You just have to sit and meditate. <laughs> For me, that was that was it. I went to Sydney. Uh, I met Kathy. Um, she did my uh, prep lecture. I was initiated by a wonderful, wonderful yogi, Martin McGee, who's been a dear friend. Martin's now in Utkashi. He's been there for probably 300 years. You know, he's uh, so Martin was my initiator. 
Uh, I learned TM. I walked out of the puja room in Sydney uh, where there was a huge picture of Gurudev hanging on the wall. I stood in front of that picture. I was very emotional. I said, I'm going to do this. I didn't know what that meant, but I'm going to do this to 100% all the way. Things were a little looser in those days. The next day, uh, after first day checking, Martin took us all for dinner at a vegetarian restaurant. He produced his uh, book of photos from his teacher training course, which was 1969, Rishikesh. And in that, Maharishi had taken the whole course to Kashmir. And there was a photograph of Maharishi standing with Swami Lakshman Jew. And I said to Martin, it attracted me. I said, who is that? He said, oh, it's, it's Swami Lakshmanju. He lives in Kashmir. He came to see us. He gave a lecture on uh, Kashmir Shaivism. Maharishi was very, very close to him, revered him. And that's, I think, maybe a seed might have been sown there. I don't know. And then Martin said something about he is, uh, he, um, he, there's a copy of the Shiva Sutras by him, you know, floating around the movement. And that was that. So, uh, those early days of the movement were very different. You know, my first residence course, um, I went the weekend after I'd been initiated. And in those courses, you said you could wake up whatever time you want and do as many rounds as you want before lunch. <laughs> so here I am, a one-week a one meditator, and I think I did six rounds, six 20-minute meditations with yoga in between. You know, a round, a round is actually where you, you meditate for 20 minutes and then you do 15 minutes of asanas. So, so that's one round, and I was doing six of those before breakfast or before lunch um, and was pleasantly spaced out, you know, pleasantly spaced out. In fact, I, I had to leave the lecture hall one day because I couldn't stop laughing, and the bliss was, the bliss was just infectious. So uh, I dived deep into that straight away, and within two years, it was time for me to become a teacher. It was just very obvious that I needed to be—I needed to know uh, this, and I needed to become intimate uh, and develop an intimate relationship with Maharishi. In other words, you had an awakening and a craving for more knowledge, for more of yeah. what you had experienced through the practice of TM. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In what ways had your life changed when you learned TM, if at all? Uh, no, it just just an immediate recognition that this was what you should do in this life. This is this is the most important thing, and and an underlying blissful feeling, um, a recognition of something that used to happen when I was a kid. I wouldn't call it clear transcendence you know, because I didn't know what that really meant. But as a child, I can clearly remember waking up in the morning, probably somewhere before the age of 10 years old, lying in bed and then being able to close my eyes and go back into this sky, this blue sky. And I could open my eyes again and realize I was awake, but close my eyes again, like at, right at the junction point. It seemed like I had, I, I could sort of, just flip back and forward between that and the junction point. And this felt very familiar. Was that a blissful experience? Oh, yeah, yeah, it was blissful. It was blissful. And, but there was an internal kind of knowingness 
that came with learning TM that, uh, and I didn't didn't relate it to something that I'd done before, but I felt, my God, you know, I, I, this is so familiar. This is so familiar to sit and meditate. And uh, I was gun ho, Ron. I I I. I I had more people medita- meditate, more of my friends. I think within two months, 45 of my social circle, all surfers and whatever, had learned TM. And because we weren't that close to the centre, we were having bigger um, bigger group meditations than they were at the TM centre. Everybody would be, everybody went vegetarian. We were all radical, you know. Marishi said better to be a vegetarian. We were all vegetarians overnight, no question. You know, it was, we were young. We were 18, 19, 20s. And you were about um, 20, you were saying, when you decided to become a teacher. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what motivated you? What was the greatest motivating factor? Um, I had a friend, Vince Beta, childhood friend, who had done uh, teacher training in Lantia. And uh, I decided when he went to do teacher training, he had the money. I had no money. I was working a government job. So I left my government job and and much to my parents' dismay, I told them I'm going to become a TM teacher, which was shock horror for them. And I went, uh, I, I got a job contracting with engineers where I was making a tremendous amount of money. And when Vince came back, he was a bit shy to start teaching, and I said, "No, I got plenty of money. Let's 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 uh, rent a center. Let's go and buy twenty chairs." And I did all that with my expense. I was so excited about just about the possibility of sharing this with people. That was my underlying motivation to just share this with as many people as possible. Was that in Sydney? That was in Sydney. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and, and there was. There was something I heard Rick Stanley's recording at that time of the Holy Tradition, and that moved me to my core. That there was a, there was a there was a you know a vinyl record out, and I got a copy of that. And on one of the tracks, I think it was Rick and maybe Paul Faso, and there was one track where Rick uh, sang the the Holy Tradition and played beautiful silent guitar behind it. And I was a musician, and I, I just I started learning the puja from that. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I don't know whether people will remember that album. It might have disappeared over time. But uh, I, it, Vince once said, he said, you're more one-pointed than I am about teaching. And I said, well, yeah, well, I'm going to become a teacher too, you know, so. Now you'd mentioned that understandably parents might have been somewhat taken aback when you decide to pursue becoming a teacher of a meditation. Because they, of course, are thinking of your well-being and your ability to earn a livelihood. And I'm wondering, up until that point, were they involved with your practice of meditation? Were they supportive of it up until then? Not at first. My father really rebuked. He, he, he thought that it was uh, something really foreign. My mother, being the soul that she was, she said to him, well, let's try it. Let's see what he's doing. Look, look, he's cut his hair. <laughs> I had very long hair. He's cut his hair. He's cleaned up his act. He's obviously not, um, you know, not smoking marijuana anymore. And uh, But my mum started and my dad was still, he still had reservations. So he ran off to see the local priest, as you would. 
And he said to the priest, he said, my family have all become Moonies, even my wife <laughs> and, my, and my three sons, other three sons, along with George, are all doing this transcendental meditation. And I'm really worried. And the priest said, you said transcendental meditation? He said, yeah, that's what they're doing. My dad would say, you know, the Maharashi or something like that. And the priest said, well, Tony, I have to tell you the truth. I've been doing that for two years because I had hypertension and it really works. And I would, I would advise you to do it straight away. Ah, that's perfect. perfect. So that was perfect. That was getting it directly from, you know, one of God's messengers. So he learned TM the next week. And my dad had actually been a prisoner of war. Uh, for three years, up until the end of the war, he was a prisoner of war just outside of uh, Hiroshima, far enough away not to be you know, fully affected. So he had a lot of health issues. And within six months of doing TM, they all cleared up. Wow. So, so, that, so now my whole family were, it was group meditation whenever we were together and dinner together. It was something quite, quite, divine I you know and that went on for a few years until we all split up and went our own ways um, but my mother and father never missed a beat fantastic my mother and father meditated from 1972 say or 73 up until the time they left this world inspired by the changes they saw in you at least in your mother's case yes Yes, yes, at least in my mother's case. But she was, my mother was very kind of hidden and it was very natural for her. I remember I went to look after my mother for four years before she died. And she used to have a prayer group. These old ladies, you know, all salt of the earth ladies, all had six, seven, eight. One lady had ten children. So they were Catholics. They went forth and multiplied, you know, in, in, in great numbers. So one day she announced to them after they'd done their little rosary thing and she said, now George is going to teach us all to meditate. And I said, well, mum, you know, it's not quite like that. But um, I taught them just some very simple relaxation technique and they meditated for 10 minutes. And at the end of it, my mother announces to them, she says, well, did you all see the blue light? And I looked at my mother. I said, <laughs> she said, yeah, the big blue light that comes in your forehead here and just sits there. My gosh. And uh, I said, Mom, this is the first time they've meditated. You've been meditating now for 40 years plus. Um, she said, no, 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 it'll, it'll come. If you do this every day, it'll come. You'll see this. In, uh, so that, and she do, she'd never read it. A, a spiritual book, a yoga book. She did yoga. She did yoga from the early days. But, you know, uh, very, very divine lady, you know, just. Now, you mentioned that when you were going to church as a, as a young boy, you would see celestial beings. You would see angels in your church. Is that something that continued through your life outside of church as well? No. No, no, that that pretty much stopped. Um, that pretty much stopped, and, and when I stopped going to that particular church, this was actually a church which was also a primary school, a Catholic primary school. You know the old system where they used to divide the the rooms up. They had these big rolling doors, and they would open them all up. The school desks would would flip down and turn into you know pews and. Um, it, and that's where I actually went to school first in, in Australia. 
and uh, it just it had a divine atmosphere. Later on, I remember. I remember. I think it was even Vastu, <laughs> Vastu regulated that the church faced east and uh, thing. But that that happened a few times, and then uh, it went away. I never had celestial perception after that. Um, yeah, that was that was uh, you know that was just basically uh, I guess a childhood thing that you accept. But I re always remember when the bells ring, they had those little six bell kind of things, which were um, thing. And bells, of course, in India, enliven Shakti. Bells are usually uh, rung when you're doing certain mantras for for Mother Divine. And I felt the thrills go right through me and right through the the place. You know, it was. Yeah. And then after teaching TM for many years and teaching thousands of people, you were drawn to Shaivism. Can you explain a little bit about what Shaivism actually is and what's the distinction between Shaivism in a general sense and Kashmiri Shaivism? I was fortunate to have a, a, a very close relationship with Maharishi and I asked his permission could I go and study, you know, in India? Could I go and study Shaivism? And he gave me permission. Otherwise, I never would have would have done that on my own bat. And uh, when I went uh, and I met with Swami Lakshman Jew, uh, he he actually when he heard that I was a, a TM meditator and that I was a teacher, he was very adamant that I never missed my program, never missed my meditation program, and everything that Maharishi had taught me. He said, uh, you do that. And it wasn't until I'd been there a few months, uh, I was attending the lectures, but I was very lucky because I, I immediately could, could go to his, you know, private lectures. And he was talking about practices within Kashmir Shaivism. So I asked him, I said, Is, would it be valuable for me to learn some of these practices to become familiar? And he said, yes, of course. So the main difference, you know, I, he taught me the very next day, basically, uh, the practice of that. And it was a very simple technique of it's a mixture of mantra and also awareness of the flow of the breath, which, you know, in, in transcendental meditation, there's no, um, there's no point where you, you know, watch breath or do anything like that. But in Shaivism, uh, there, it's a very important part of your practice because Breath is prana. Breath is life, and the breath itself, you know, has has a, a significant function. They've even got it down to that we breathe twenty one thousand six hundred times a day, and if we don't, we die. So the first thing we do in this world is we come into this world, we breathe. The last thing is we take our last breath. So the the main difference was that there was just a subtle shift in awareness, along with uh, you know. Uh, these bija mantras where you um, watch your breath. And I remember asking Swamiji at the end of when he taught me, how long should I practice this? And he said, I meant, you know, 20 minutes, one hour. Like that. He said, until you're enlightened. <laughs> so it, it wasn't that you did this practice only in a formal seat, seated position when you got up from meditation, it was such a simple practice. You could you could actually try to incorporate it into your day. And it wasn't something that divided your attention because I said once, well, won't that divide my attention? He said, you breathe, don't you? 
<laughs> so that's that, that's the main uh, thing that I would say that there was a, a difference. Well, I'm just wondering if you were to define what Shaivism is in a few sentences, how would you define it? I would def- I would say that the underlying principle of Shaivism, which is is a monistic system, so. Uh, Monistic means it, it's a, a system that sees oneness, that God is and the individual are one. And uh, from Swamiji's own statements, he said that the essence of this teaching is that, that uh, God and the individual are one and the same being. To realize this is the essence of Kashmir Shaivism. So that I guess the, 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 the real thing is, is that... Uh, you realize that if there is only one being, if there's a, if there's a supreme god or supreme godhead, whatever you want to call Brahman, Shiva, you know, uh, Rudra, and uh, that one being has manifested in all other beings. So every every being from a bug up to the the deities of Brahma, Vishnu, and, and Rudra, they are all manifestations that have come out of the light of of God consciousness. And because you're also a part of that light, then you can realize your your oneness with with God through um, letting go of all of the illusions that have made us feel that we're separate. Could we say it's much like the teaching of Vedanta, that consciousness is primary and that everything emerges thus from consciousness? Yeah, that, those two uh, things run parallel, but there are very subtle differences uh, between Vedanta and Kashmir Shaivism. Advaita, you know, Shankara is Advaita Vedanta. And possibly the main one is the idea of, of in Shankara's teaching, it's a very big part that neti neti, not this, not this, that the objective world is an illusion and doesn't really exist. In Shaivism... It says, no, uh, actually Lord Shiva has, through his Shakti, through his energy, through the Divine Mother, has manifested everything in the universe. And therefore, it's real. The illusion is to see it in differentiatedness, is to see it as all different parts and not see the underlying uh, field, field of consciousness that is vibrating behind everything. So there's there isn't... There isn't a an idea of negation or an idea of renunciation in Kashmir Shaivism. Uh, although I, I have heard Vedanta described in those very terms as well. Not to say that yes. everything is not real, it's real, but it exists within and from consciousness. That consciousness is primary. Yes, 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 yes. So in that sense, Shaivism has a similarity, a direct correspondence to Vedanta, which is also monistic, teaching that consciousness is all there is, that consciousness is primary, and everything manifest does exist, but it exists from and within consciousness. Yeah, those, those two concepts run parallel and in total agreement with one another. Uh, I think the only difference that I would I would say is that the idea of uh, Vedanta in general 
is considered to be and has been for many years a, a renunciation uh, type of thing. I mean, sannyasins in India and all of these people who give up the world are considered to be really searching for, you know, some greater spiritual experience. And 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 in Kashmir Shaivism, it looks at the the idea if the, if there is a oneness of of consciousness in everything, then what is there to give up? Um, maybe it's just a shift in perception, and that happens in both the systems. <clears throat> but uh, Kashmir never had a strong Shankaracharya tradition. Never had a strong a Vedantic tradition here. Right, right. Buddhist, Buddhist. Understood. Yeah, yeah. Although that, to me, is could be put in the category of interpretation and implementation as opposed to the actual purity of the knowledge itself. In other words, both are monistic. How one realizes that may be yes. different. And, and naturally, each discipline and each philosophy has its own approach to that knowledge. Would, would that be correct? Yes, yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, in, a, in a previous conversation, we, we were talking and we touched on uh, that wonderful statement of, uh, I think it's Thich Nhat Hanh, who kind of summed up the idea of Kashmir Shaivism, at least, and Vedanta, in that we feel, anyone on a spiritual path, anybody who starts meditating, we feel that we're sort of conscious beings trying to have an experience of consciousness, and for monistic system, it's the other way around. You have to realize that actually we are consciousness having the experience of an individual being. Right, right, right. It's a question of perspective. Which one, which one is primary? Which one underlies the other one? And yes, that's yes. the growth to enlightenment, as I understand it, is very much a, ship of, a shift of perspective. Much yeah. in that manner. Yeah, yeah. Now, in, in the, the podcast description for this program and in the introduction, we talk about how the fact that um, Sir Arthur Eddington said, the stuff of the world is mind stuff. Another way of saying consciousness. And I'm wondering, in your experience and in your understanding, how would you interpret that? What does it mean to you when you read something that physicists say that point very much in the same direction as what you've studied from a spiritual perspective? Yeah, well, I mean, look at it, the subject we've just touched on, which is this idea of uh, consciousness being the underlying principle of everything. If there is one being then they have manifested this whole universe. And they've manifested it through uh, the expression of consciousness coming into the world, this energy of consciousness. As a limited being, we have manifested our own universe through the mind. The mind is the container for each and every one of us. The mind is the container of our own reality, our own limited universe, we can say. And that universe, the size of that universe, depends upon the capacity of our mind to expand and incorporate and understand how big we actually are. 
we tend to think of the world as external. Here we are within our skin, yes. and everything else is an object that is outside of ourselves. And we forget or fail to realize that that entire experience of that world, the objects in this room, the objects that I think about beyond this room, beyond this world, they're all experienced via my own consciousness. Whatever perception, whatever thought we may have, exists within ourselves. Yes, yes. Yeah, the light, the light of consciousness, light, uh, the Sanskrit word for that is prakash. The light of consciousness is shining through the eyes of every living being, whether it's a bug or whether it's, you know, a, a celestial deity. That light of consciousness is shining through every perception. The, the mind is this uh, cloak which either differentiates everything that we've, we're seeing and we forget that actually the, the very thing we're looking for, which is consciousness, is actually the torch we're holding in our hand. It's the light coming from us. And we continually get, you know, it's called lost in the world or lost in thought. And, and Kashmir Shaivism has a beautiful thing about the mind uh, that you don't have to, you know, refute your mind because the mind, the limited mind, is just consciousness turned inward on itself. And it creates a bubble of our own small reality and when the mind dissipates, that bubble, the, the, the exterior of that bubble, which is our own small little world, disappears and consciousness then uh, again embraces itself as a, a universal ocean. And this is the whole concept of, of moving from limitation, limitation of our own little universe, in which we have freedom to move about, but freedom based on what we know, uh, to moving to a more universal state where you have the freedom of knowledge, of, of perfect knowledge, of universal knowledge. That's so so well expressed. Uh, thank you, George. I really, I really like that. It, it reminds me, too, of um, descriptions I've heard where it has been said that the ignorance is due largely to inadvertence, that uh, we fail to put our attention on the self, on that pure value of consciousness, and instead become engrossed and engaged in the small self, the activity of the mind and our senses of perception, whereas the reality is there all the time. But due to inadvertence, we fail to notice it. Yeah, yeah, beautiful. Beautiful. Because, and there's, okay, let, let's, let's hypothetically say that we are God <laughs> because we don't feel it. You know, I, I feel limited. I, I know I'm sitting in a room here, but let's say that everything that I've studied for the last 50 years or more, let's say that, that I am actually God or I'm, I'm Brahma or I'm Shiva. So, and everything else is that. So what is the first experience for a limited soul when they actually have the direct experience of that? And um, Swami Lakshman Ju says that the first experience that comes 
is a feeling of recognition that I always was this. And they look back on everything else as, what was that? Yes, that was, that was just lost, distracted. Well, that was play. Kashmir Shaivism okay. looks, at, looks, at, looks at it as play. So if, if God wants to play in the world, without us, without us, without our eyes and without the eyes of all living beings, there would be no universe. Now, many, many people are sensitive about use of the term God. Okay. In the sense that you're using it, can we equate God with pure consciousness in this case, an all-knowingness, uh, yes. an all-pervasive, pure, universal consciousness? Yes. Which many people would say is their God, whatever name they may call their God by. Yes, yes. No, that's that's really true. I bring up the term God because uh, from what I've learned is that there's two types of individuals on the spiritual path. There are those who very easily can relate to this idea of an unbounded consciousness and they can sit and meditate or pursue their spiritual path with a, with a conviction, a firm conviction that there is this unboundedness it's, it's, it's consciousness alone, and therefore all I need to do is to experience that consciousness in its fullness. Now, there are other people who uh, find that very difficult and very abstract, and for those people, the concept of God or something to devote their attention to, to put their attention on, and you know, you've been to India, you go to any temple in India, there's there's a, a million temples and there's there's deities and all of these things, it's, it's for those who need a focus and their idea, because their ability to conceive of just an unbounded ocean of consciousness that we're all swimming in um, doesn't ground them in, on a spiritual path. Quite right, quite right. So that's, you know, that's what probably one of the, well, I mean, one of the third most um, translated books on the planet, you know, which is part of the, the Bhagavad Gita, very clearly, you know, says that, that there, are, there are four paths, you know, the path of devotion, the path of knowledge, um, the path of action. So, again, if this universal consciousness has manifested itself in all forms, then it is also provided within that the the path or the paths most appropriate to come back to realizing itself. Quite right, quite right. And, and uh, to think in terms of an absolute pure consciousness, that abstract value, I agree with you, it's, it's more difficult for many in order to relate to that as opposed to having an object of devotion, which may be seen as, yes. as a god. Or the God, depending on yeah. which religion. Well, I mean, let's let's face it: that, that whatever you put your attention on, whatever is most important in your life, is your God, because you're just totally focused on that. And uh, and I remember Swami Lakshmanju said to one person who said, "I'm I'm not I'm not." really don't feel I'm really progressing on, on the spiritual path. I've been meditating for many years. And he said, when your passion 
to find yourself, to experience consciousness, is as great as the passion that you had when you first fell in love, he said, then you will you will begin because your whole focus, everybody remembers the first time you fell in love, it was your whole world. Now that person, uh, the girl or the boy, wasn't your God, but they may as well have been because that your your whole attention, your whole life, your every breath was was directed in that direction. I think this concept comes up for many on whatever spiritual path they're on. Uh, a time comes when some experience comes where they they feel that same pull and passion and devotion for for finding the truth about themselves, which is the truth about yourself is that is is consciousness has manifested through us, like Thich Nhat Hanh said, that we are we are consciousness having a human experience. And when when you felt that pull towards Shaivism and the study of it, was it an inexplicable urge or was there something specific that drew you to it, something on the tangible level? It was it was both. It was both, definitely. Um, but Early in the piece, when when I was doing uh, TM and I was you know teaching and I was meeting doing courses in Switzerland, Maharishi had started a, a Vedic science course that was started in 1972 or 73. So I, I I didn't have any money to go on that course, but I. I got all the copies of all of the books with Maharishi's permission. He said, this is all the stuff that you should study. Do it in your own time. One of those was the Shiva Sutras by Swami Lakshman Jew. And I read that over and over. And I, that, that was a draw towards this idea of consciousness because the very first verse in that is Chaitanyam Atma. Consciousness is everything. You know, that was, and that struck me. And that ignorance, the very second verse, is that ignorance is uh, not knowing uh, undifferentiatedness and knowing differentiatedness. There's two aspects to ignorance. If you don't know everything is consciousness, you're ignorant. And, and if you know everything is not consciousness, you're ignorant. <laughs> you know. So that, uh, that struck me. And... Uh, and then uh, I remember the third verse was about how, so how does something that's as unbounded as a notion of consciousness become limited? That seems important. How do you squeeze an ocean into a drop? Where are all the drops? Because we're living in our little bubble. How does that happen? And uh, it, it happens, it says, through a process of consciousness placing limitation on itself. And that limitation is a false limitation that will make you feel slightly incomplete, slightly uh, less unbounded. So once that happens, once we get squeezed into, not, not a drop, but we're, we're squeezed into Lake Michigan, it's a big drop, then uh, we start to look for completion in the world. We start to move out of consciousness, but not back towards the ocean from where we came, but we start to look for things in the world to fill the void, to fill the gap. And this is considered to be the play of how consciousness 
plays within itself and draws itself down into the world, down in, so much down into the world to become a rock, and then consciousness through living beings, you know, through conscious beings, move themselves back towards that ocean. When the urge comes within one, you know, oh, okay, I've, I've done enough. I've done all these things, but they haven't filled the void. <laughs> they haven't filled me up. You know, I've got, I'm, I'm wealthy. I've got everything that I ever needed in this world, but there's still something missing. So that's considered to be <clears throat> this descent of consciousness and the rise of consciousness. And anybody, anybody uh, can experience that at any level. You know, it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's just, and that's why it's called a play of consciousness. Is there any manner by which you could encapsulate or describe how your personal growth has matured over these years or how your experiences have developed? I, I would say that the first thing that happened um, was when, when I was taught Kashmir Shaivism, this very subtle barrier um, self-imposed really between formal meditation and action started to disappear. So um, it, it, anybody who practices, say, any type of practice, a transcendental meditation or any type of practice that involves the process of what's called transcending, where you're, where you're transcending the limitations of your mind and going to deeper states of consciousness, they'll always feel that after meditation, after they come out, there's some spilling over into the world of that, that silence, that quietness. It's a natural phenomenon. I'm sure everybody feels that. You know, you can feel it even after prayer. You know, uh, you, you pray and you come out of that or you come out of church, wherever, and you feel <clears throat> that you bring some silence with you. But there's always a tendency to, to create a mental differentiation between, okay, that's practice or that's going to church and this is, this is my daily life. And that subtle uh, barrier, that uh, subtle curtain began to fall away uh, for me and I found that integrating practice into action, it, 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 it sort of started to spill over. So there wasn't this feeling that if I hadn't meditated that there was something missing. You know, I would, I would always be very regular with my meditation. It was a joy to sit and meditate and to sink into a very quiet state and feel your breath settle right down. And that's all research. You know, everybody knows that uh, meditation now, um, you know, is good for all aspects of the body. But the, the idea that that uh, is the only way and that outside of meditation I'm just running around in the world, um, that that started to fall away. I would bring the silence out into my meditation, but it, it seemed to last longer and longer. The idea that we, we sink into meditation and then bring that back into the world. So what I was feeling was that that, that barrier between formal meditation and my daily activity started to fall away. And, and Kashmir Shaivism, which I followed for the last, you know, 40 years, uh, 
integrates this idea of, of uh, just being aware during activity and uh, that's called uh, yoga in action, we can say. That's called. And the action you've been working on for several decades now, actually transcribing word for word the lectures of Swami Lakshmanju, you must have gained a great deal, imbibed a lot of his knowledge by going through word for word and transcribing all that wonderful knowledge. Absolutely. And um, I can just backtrack a little bit. I was very thirsty for knowledge when I came to Kashmir. But Swamiji uh, threw me headlong into working. And I didn't get any chance to study for about eight years. It was kind of, you could say it was kind of a Milarepa uh, thing, where, you know, go and build this, do this, deconstruct this. I immediately thought of Milarepa when you said that as well. Yeah. Well, my first job uh, was to demolish an old uh, mud cow shed. Uh, Swamiji was a very, uh, he was a, a very great gardener. He had bees, he had his own cows. Everything was self-sufficient, a, a garden that was immaculate. So he said, could you, uh, since you have civil engineering experience, and uh, are you hands-on? Can you? I said, yeah, I'm definitely hands-on. And he said, well, could you demolish this old cow shed? I want to build a hoven, Chala. That was job number one. Job number two was that when he saw that I did have skills, he wanted to completely demolish his lecture hall, which was an old mud hut hall, and build a two-story lecture hall, which today is just used, you know, it wasn't until about eight years later that uh, John Hughes um, asked Swamiji that, you know, I mean, George has this background in Sanskrit. It would be wonderful if he could help me with transcribing all of these 700, 800 hours of lectures. And Swamiji just said, yeah, just casually said, yes, he should do that. And that was the start. And once I started, I got such inspiration from him to when he said you know make sure that everything that i've said is is correct you know now i i didn't do any sanskrit translation this is one thing that's really important to understand i could read sanskrit fluently but i would never consider myself to be a sanskritist and what swamiji did was he took he didn't lecture just um ad lib he took the most important texts of his tradition, which date back more than 5,000 years, and he translated them verse by verse. And he did it in a way where he didn't give a, a clearly literal translation. He gave the essence of what each of those verses meant. And that's what I got to dive into for 20 years, you know, and I finished that in 2008, I think. And then there was a decision up to that point, John Hughes had been editing these lectures and publishing books. And after listening to this and imbibing it, I said, John, why don't we just uh, give people the opportunity to hear the original lecture in the voice of, of uh, you know, a teacher who imbibed the tradition? So from then on, we started uh, producing transcripts along with audios. So that, that was what I did, yeah. And to be in the presence of a, a realized individual, an enlightened individual, one who has achieved moksha, liberation, enlightenment, whatever people would like to call it, it's considered 
a great blessing and for good reason. Um, and it's given a special name, darshan, because it's known, of course, that one who is enlightened and perceives the reality and the unity of life enlivens that throughout his or her environment. And you enjoyed that darshan of Lakshmanju for many years. Can you tell us a little bit about what it was like to be in the presence of Swami Lakshmanju Maharaj? Yeah, it, it was it was very interesting because from my first meeting with him, uh, I felt a, a, a very strong presence. And once I started to work in the ashram and meet him on a daily basis, I saw that he was uh, completely um, at home with everything that was happening around him. And in Kashmir, saints of his caliber remain very hidden. No, but hardly anybody knew about him until Maharishi came, until Maharishi came and visited in 66. So Swamiji had this kind of camouflage where he would behave in such an ordinary way that you would not think that he was an enlightened yogi. And then the very next instant, he would do something so miraculous in such a casual way you were astounded, and then he had a way of just dropping the curtain over your awareness to where you went back to seeing him as just the person that you were working for. That happened to me on many, many occasions, and I, I, witnessed, I witnessed him using siddhis. They say that when a, a, a yogi re reaches a level of um, a certain level of enlightenment, they develop what's called the ashta siddhis. The siddhi means a perfection. So they have these great uh, powers of being able to be small or big, transport themselves in time. I mean, you can look up siddhi on uh, Wikipedia and you can get a very, a very good understanding of what these powers are. But there's another level when a, a, a saint or a yogi foregoes these limited powers and they actually get what's called universal siddhis, where then they have control over nature um, and they, don't, they only use those for the benefit of people around them. They never use it for their own benefit or their own you know, uh, aggrandizement. And that's what I witnessed uh, around Swami Lakshmanju. And he, although he was a Hindu, he lived in a village which was predominantly Muslim, and many of the Muslim people were his closest devotees. What a precious and valuable and fortunate experience you've had. Truly, truly blessed. What do you think the future holds for the world now in terms of spirituality? We see a lot of difficult situations around the world. We see various conflicts in the world. We see various catastrophes. We see climate change. What do you think in terms of the future of the world and the spiritual values of the world? And can spiritual values, in effect, bring the world back from the brink that it's at now? Yeah, no, I definitely think that, again, there's a, if, if one takes a a view of a monistic tradition, it's very difficult these days to see that, okay, if there's only one being, why is this one being doing all of this to himself or herself? <laughs> you know, why the world is obviously in turmoil. 
there's a wonderful verse which says that uh, sometimes the world gets shaken up in order to wake up. And that's a process uh, that, that ta has taken place over many, many centuries. I mean, you know, we're, we're in a, a place where, um, yeah, everything looks like it's, uh, you know, we could, we could be entering into World War III, for instance, or we, you know, there's so much turmoil in each country. It's not, to, it's not something that's limited to any one country now. This is global. And, and yet, uh, for those people that are on a, deeply entrenched in a spiritual path, there's still a sense of peace. It doesn't mean that they don't do anything about this. They do whatever they can within their own uh, you know, capacity, but there's still a sense of peace that, there's, that this is going on, yes. Um, and I think Maharishi said an interesting thing, that the world can go up and down, but the righteous will survive. You know, Swami Lakshmanju has said the same thing. There will be, there will be before leaving this world, he's predicted that there would be a lot of... Uh, turmoil and upheaval going on in, in our lifetime. But he said that, you know, if you, if you stick securely to your spiritual practice, whatever that is, then you'll feel this protection. You'll feel this inner peace amid the turmoil. And remember, you know, it's not just now. If we go back to what's called the last yuga, and this I mentioned before the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna and Arjuna in the middle of a battlefield. That was also going to be a fairly tumultuous time. And it all happened. And Krishna's advice to Arjuna was to meditate and to, to go beyond the phenomena of what's happening. And this is, this, is the, this is the only way that I see it. But I do see that, that when more and more people are meditating and experiencing a rise of consciousness internally, then the world also gets shaken up. So I think it's definitely something that's happening a balanced scale, and uh, we should always feel positive that there is a light at the end of the tunnel. Quite right, George. And I, I think speaking on that hopeful note, we know that, as you said, if the universe is monistic, and if consciousness is primary, and if we can enliven consciousness and bring more of the full value into the surface value of life, then there is a hope to rebalance and create harmony, because consciousness itself knows harmony and balance. And it's only when individuals act out of their great freedom that they can create that imbalance and disharmony. Yes, yes. I, I, I would finish with one thing, that there's a, there's a, a very clear understanding in Kashmir Shaivism that each of us has our, our boundary, our general boundary extends for about 80-mile radius around us in all directions. So we live in a bubble which we create ripples with everything that we do, and those ripples go out for a distance of about 80 miles, 80-mile radius. So that's a big bubble for each of us. And all of our bubbles are overlapped and we feel the tension of other people's stress and everything. So the more that a person meditates and, and, and it starts to experience their own consciousness, they create ripples within their own uh, bubble that affects everybody else that's overlapping with them. 
And, you know, Maharishi called it the 1% effect and that, but it's true, you know, peripheral vision for a human being is supposed to be 75 miles. But what we don't realize is that our, the essence of ourselves is continually vibrating out to that distance. So there's hope. There's hope when we think that people who meditate together in groups and everything, that they're creating this uplifting vibration, which is often upsetting the dross. It's upsetting any corruption or dirt or untruth. And I think that that's what's happening. There's a lot of stuff coming to the surface. But I think that, you know, ahead there will be um, a time where consciousness rules supreme again and uh, everybody, uh, you know, moves towards a much more enlightened, not only individual enlightenment, but environmental enlightenment. Well, it's very much happening now. Uh, Yes. Just in the podcast world, which I've become more familiar with as of late, we see many, many podcasts just on this theme of the development of consciousness on spirituality. You read more about it. You see it more. 20 years ago, 25 years ago, yoga was an oddity. (laughs) It was made fun of. Now there's a yoga center on every street corner. They're ubiquitous now, and everyone's practicing yoga. Everyone understands the value of taking care of themselves, of developing both mental and physical health, and doing it in a holistic way. Not through pharmaceuticals, not necessarily through calisthenics, but taking recourse to the traditional knowledge that we have from India and other countries. In closing... Is there anything you would like to say to our listeners? Any message or any suggestions or hopes or experiences that you'd like to share? Well, I, I think in, in summary, um, again, uh, what Swami Lakshmanju always said is that anybody who's taken one step on a spiritual path, one step towards understanding themselves, It happens because a grace expands within them and something opens up in their life to want to do that. And he says that grace, as small or, you know, feeble as it may be in the beginning, that one step towards a greater realization of oneself is the beginning of a journey that grace will continue to unfold and that that grace is your own grace. Beautiful, beautiful ending. Thank you so much, George. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much for coming on Simplest State, for sharing your experiences, both as a practitioner of Transcendental Meditation and a teacher and a devotee and great aid to Swami Lakshmanju Maharaj. I'm sure that you're serving his ashram and his legacy in the highest order. And thank you so much for sharing this with us. I can't say anything else, John, and it's always nice to talk to you as an old friend.